Here we are at the beginning of Holy Week, really the high point of the Christian calendar in many ways. We have a song that goes, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But this truly is the most wonderful time of the year in the sense of wonderful. It's a time of wonder, a time of to wonder. It's a moment of upheaval, a moment of mystery, a moment of amazement. We call it Holy Week. In the Eastern Church, they call it the Great Week. And this Great Holy Week, of course, culminates in Easter, or as they call it in Bulgaria, Velikden, which means the Great Day. One of the joys of Anglicanism is that it gives us the tools to tap into rich Christian traditions. And of course, we're doing that this morning on Palm Sunday. We're doing something that's been done by Christians for centuries. Uh, The Liturgy of the Palms is one of the oldest in the church. It goes back to the third century Jerusalem church, the 200s. And there are believers, and, and at that time, believers would start sort of gathering and trying to follow the last days of Jesus's earthly life by visiting places that were connected with his final actions. And this included a reenactment of the triumphal entry with palm branches. The procession of palms would begin at the Mount of Olives. They would come down the mountain, past the Garden of Gethsemane, across the Kidron Valley, and then up into Jerusalem. And this procession eventually found its way to Europe, to Spain by the 400s, and it was practiced in England by 700. And as we did today, typically it would start outside the church building and then move into the church building, which represented Jerusalem. So this morning, Redeemer Classical Gymnasium is Jerusalem. Use your imagination a little bit. This procession of the palms is a beautiful tradition and it's filled with deep meaning and significance. So this morning, I want to talk about a few of those things. First and foremost, this procession is an act of praise to Christ the King. And on this day, our Lord enacted really a scene from messianic theater. It's a royal act. It was carefully planned and arranged and staged. It was deliberate, not spontaneous. Notice from the first gospel reading, the careful detail that Jesus gives to his disciples about the donkey. And as far as we can tell, it's the only time that Jesus actually rode on an animal during his ministry. He always traveled by foot, and in fact, for Passover, pilgrims were expected to walk up to Jerusalem. What we did this morning, what we're doing today, is a proper response to Christ's royalty as Jesus is worshiped by his followers. And notice in the Luke account that they're described as a multitude of his disciples. So at least in Luke's telling of the story, the triumphal entry is an event for and of believers. Its meaning lies in Jesus and their faith in him. It's not primarily related to public favor or disfavor. It's not really about the fickleness of humanity. It's, about, it's not about people who shout praise on Sunday and scream for crucifixion on Friday. It's for believers. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus' followers had come to full clarity and maturity. Um, these events will test them severely. We remember that Peter 
is going to be sifted like wheat. And Luke's account also is the only one that includes the Pharisees' objection to this act of worship. And Jesus' response, where he affirms the rightness of the disciples' praise. If they don't praise him, then the rocks will. They'll cry out. So the praise of the multitude of believers is right and true. And as our processional hymn indicates, Christ accepts it as true worship. And he is worthy of praise, is he not? The lamb who would be slain in five days' time. Notice the proclamation of the multitude of disciples in our gospel reading. If you have your worship guide, take that back out and look on the front. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not blessed is the rabbi, the teacher, or blessed is the prophet, but blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, Jesus is both, uh, both uh, teacher and prophet. But on this day, on Palm Sunday, the accent is clearly on his kingship. So what kind of king is this? What kind of king is Christ? First of all, he is a Davidic king. The first words that we spoke, again, Hosanna to the son of David, the king of Israel. The kingship of Christ isn't something that pops up suddenly in Luke, in late Luke. It's there from the beginning. It's there at the Annunciation. Remember the words of Gabriel. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And of course, as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he directly fulfills the words of Zechariah, a prophecy which describes the return of a Davidic king. Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Christ is not only a Davidic king, he is very much an unconventional king. And the kingdom he's inaugurating, described as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is an unconventional kingdom. Tim Keller calls it an upside-down kingdom. Human kingdoms are right-side-up kingdoms. These kind of kingdoms are characterized by the exercise of military might, brute force, even cruelty, and they've been in operation for most of human history. In fact, there's a right-side-up kingdom at work right now in the Ukraine, the Russian Federation. It's relying on military force, brutality, and intimidation. That's why it's nearly leveled the city of Mariupol, a city of half a million inhabitants. Remember that Jesus tells the people when he's lamenting over Jerusalem that the Romans would uh, tear them and their children down to the ground and that they would not leave one stone upon the other. We don't really need to exercise our imagination to picture this, do we? We just have to check the news and see the rubble of scores of buildings every day in the Ukraine. There are even reports of mobile crematoria in Mariupol. Apparently in 21st century Europe, it's not too cool to leave the corpses of civilians on the street to rot. And so the Russian army is covering their tracks by incinerating bodies. Well, at least this is what the Ukrainian government is saying. 
The Russian government claims that this is the propaganda of Ukrainian ultranationalist Nazis. There's nothing new under the sun. And 2,000 years ago, the Romans were the same, though the technology differed. And don't let the nostalgia of history fool you. It wasn't a golden age. Uh, don't even let the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, fool you. That peace came at a tremendous cost. Thousands of civilians killed and oppressed. And we see this in Luke. We get hints of this kind of oppression. There's a striking incident of Roman cruelty mentioned earlier on, an incident where Pilate mingles the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. Apparently they were worshiping in the temple and they're killed in cold blood. That's the way a right side, king, a right side up kingdom tends to operate. But the upside, upside down kingdom of Christ is, well, upside down. The entire gospel of Luke celebrates the world being turned upside down. And how does this happen? It happens through an upside down king who is not born in a palace, but in a stable. He's wrapped in rags and he spends his first night in a cattle trough. In time, he becomes a reputable teacher, a prophet, but he's itinerant, he's homeless. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And he amazes people by his authoritative upside-down teaching. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, and revile you. In his upside-down kingdom, the powerful are not great, but they're servants. And he demonstrates this very powerfully by washing his disciples' feet. This is something we'll contemplate on Maundy Thursday and this is on the night before he's crucified as an enemy of the state in well he's an enemy of the right side up kingdom isn't he in our epistle readings uh, reading from Philippians we see that Jesus made himself nothing and this is true from the moment of his birth during his childhood and during his ministry and his nothingness his absolute lack of status is especially evident in his last week on earth, this great and holy week that we begin to commemorate today. He rides into town on a borrowed donkey. He eats his last meal in a borrowed room, and he's buried in a borrowed tomb. What manner of king is this? Augustine, reflecting on the paradox of the triumphal entry, wrote the following. What great thing was it to the king of eternity to become the king of men? For Christ was not the king of Israel so that he might exact tribute or equip an army with swords or vanquish enemies on the battlefield. He was the king of Israel in exercising kingly authority over their inward motives in bringing into heavenly kingdom, the heavenly kingdom those whose faith hope, and love were centered on him. That's the kind of king we're talking about. So today we have the triumphal entry, the triumphal procession. And every human society has had moments of procession. We have them too. Think of graduations, think of weddings, think of an inauguration parade. Ancient culture specialized in these processions. 
especially martial cultures who would commemorate victories with triumphal processions. The word in the Greek for this kind of procession is parousia. And this is where individuals, usually royalty, were met at the city gates, greeted by religious and political figures. They were escorted into the city. They were witnessed by the city citizens who would typically dress up in ornamental clothing. And then they would be lauded in speeches. And often after this, the procession would go to the temple where a sacrifice would be offered in that person's honor. And by the time of the New Testament, though, these events had a distinctly imperial character. And the Roman triumphal procession was the most elite and ostentatious of these parousias. They were special. They were only granted on special occasions by the Senate. They were always military in nature. They were held in honor of a returning general whose victory was decisive. Typically, he would wear a laurel wreath, a type of, uh, a, a type of crown. He would ride in on a gilded chariot drawn by four white horses. And after this, the victor laureate would be raised to the rank of immortal, and the procession would then conclude with sacrifices at the temple. But the king of the kingdom of heaven, the king of the upside-down kingdom, takes another approach, doesn't he? His triumphal entry is provocative. In many ways, it's an anti-parousia. He's ushered into the city by an admiring crowd, yes, and his victory, signified by palm branches, will be decisive, but his conquered enemies are not conventional. They are powerful enemies, though. The greatest, in fact, Satan, sin, and death. Though he is not crowned with laurels upon his entry, he will be a victor laureate by the week's end. However, his crown will be made from thorns, razor-sharp thorns that penetrate his forehead and his scalp each time the soldiers hit him. Thorns which represent the curse that God puts on the ground because of Adam's disobedience. Christus Victor rides into the city of Jerusalem, but not on a glittering chariot drawn by four white horses. Instead, his steed is the foal of a donkey, a small, humble beast of burden, which probably struggles with its first human cargo. Instead of a high horse, a great charger, Jesus has a lowly ride, a first century low rider, so much so that his feet could probably touch the ground. The triumphal procession, this one gets even stranger. Yes, the victorious man will be regarded as immortal, but get this, first he must die to become, to be regarded as immortal. And his procession into the city, like others of this time, will end with a sacrifice, but not with a sacrifice offered in his honor. Instead, he himself will be the sacrifice. In the end, of course, Israel rejects this kind of king and this kind of kingdom. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he approaches it on a donkey. He laments that Jerusalem doesn't do the things that make for peace. He describes it as being surrounded by its enemies, hemmed in. In many ways, this is a reversal of Psalm 125, a song of ascents, a song that was sung as people approached Jerusalem as they approached the temple. Psalm 125, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. 
But because they kill the vineyard owner's only son, they will be surrounded by the hated Romans, and the city with its glorious temple will be reduced to rubble. At the beginning of the service, we were invited to follow our Lord during this holy week from his triumphal entry through to his suffering and death and then to the glory of his resurrection. But this journey is not easy, is it? It's narrow, it's harrowing, it's hard. It's filled with dramatic tension, something that we see on the first Palm Sunday. On that day, thousands of Jewish pilgrims were gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The city was brimming over with messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule. The crowds were volatile. They were like a powder keg ready for a spark. Enter Jesus. And what was Jesus himself feeling during this triumphal entry? Surely mixed emotion, excitement, joy, resolve. We do know that as he's approaching the city, he weeps. And like the psalmists and prophets of old, Jesus laments the spiritual condition of the people. This lament is complex. It expresses love and profound caring. It expresses loss at what could have been. It expresses frustration, sorrow, anger, all commingled together. Because after centuries of prayer and longing, the Lord whom the people seek is coming suddenly to his temple. But they blow their chance. They blow it. And like Jesus, we experience mixed emotions on Palm Sunday, on this first day of Holy Week. This is true in part because we know what's coming. We've seen this movie before. There's joy to be sure. Yes, the Messiah is coming. He's entering the city of the great king as its great king. But this feeling is ephemeral. It's fleeting. The triumph of this triumphal entry is seemingly short-lived. He will do mighty works during this week. This will be the week of the new creation. Like the week of creation in Genesis, day six will be the high point. And what Jesus accomplishes will be very good. Through his death, man and woman can be remade in his image. But that's the catch through his death. That's the price tag for new creation. New life will cost the Son of God his own life. So as we enter Holy Week, as we travel in our hearts to Jerusalem, there is joy and sorrow, hope and foreboding. We see that paradox in a hymn written by Henry Hart Millman. He was an Anglican priest in the 1800s, and he wrote these words, Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, thy power and reign. The paradox of those words, ride on in majesty and lowly pomp to die? Yes, that's the path to glory that our epistle reading lays out. The king of kings must bow his meek head to mortal pain. He must be obedient to death, even the death of the cross, in order to be highly exalted. This is the paschal mystery, the mystery of Easter. And we still struggle to understand this king, our king. I've been in the church for half a century, and I feel like I'm only beginning to grasp the mysteries of Holy Week. I feel like I'm in this preschool room over here to my left where there are peewee desks and chairs. I feel like I'm sitting in there just starting to learn the alphabet when it comes to Holy Week. Maybe some of you feel the same. 
If it's any consolation, the original disciples didn't get it either. They recognized Jesus coming into Jerusalem as a momentous occasion. They worshipped him, but they were way out of their depth. That's the nature of an upside-down kingdom. It's the nature of Jesus' paradoxical life and teachings. Rowan Williams said the following, Christian faith has its beginnings in an experience of profound contradictory, excuse me, contradictoriness, an experience which so questioned the religious categories of its time that the resulting reorganization of religious language was a centuries-long task. Notice this phrase, the experience of profound contradictoriness. The Nicene Creed, which we recite every week, came after years, decades of wrestling with paradoxical truth. How could the creator of the universe be a man? Much of these truths are are hard to understand, but we still believe them. We still accept them as truth. Um, A Christian singer, Jess Ray, puts it this way. "It uh, It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. There's a long tradition of Christians interpreting the garments and the branches of Palm Sunday as symbolizing the way in which Christians must spread their hearts before God. We're called to spread our hearts before God. And if you have that palm branch in your hand, you notice it's pretty flimsy. Our hearts are pretty flimsy. Yet, we are called to follow Christ into trouble, controversy, trial, and death. Do you feel like you're up for it? If you don't, that's okay. That's why we ask for God's assistance and the prayer from the liturgy of the, of the palms. So let me finish with that prayer. Assist us mercifully with your help, O God, of our salvation, that we may enter with joy upon the contemplation of these mighty acts, whereby you have given us life and immortality. May the Lord assist us. Amen.